0: You're listening to Early Doors Football Podcast with host Mark Roach and co hosts Dylan Kerr, Tom Watt and Sherelle Casal, a For The Now media production.
1: And welcome back to Matt Jarvis for your second appearance. Matt, how are you?
0: I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for getting me back on again.
1: Oh, that's okay. Well, well thanks for, for coming back on now. Um, before we before we start with with the chat with you, um, one thing that sometimes happens in advance of the interviews is or the chats, conversations, whatever you want to call them, is I send Dylan some suggested questions. Now I've got a feeling this time he wants to ask his own ones instead, so that's fine. So you can surprise me, Dylan. But um, one one thing I'm going to start off. One thing we were talking about um, recently is players who have had songs when they've been at clubs so I remember Dylan's song at Reading Dylan can you remember your song?
2: Never forget it pal Dylan Kerr my lord Dylan Kerr, Dylan Kerr
1: my lord Dylan Kerr. Oh, it was yeah. brilliant I probably sang <laughs> that a few times I probably joined in I think at Reading in the, the Reading days um Matt how about you have you ever had a song at any of your clubs? Yeah, the, the
0: the one I remember the most was uh, when I was at Wolves. We they had a song that he said he, he plays on the left, he plays on the right. That boy, Mac Jarvis, makes Messi look uh,
1: okay. <laughs> there you go. It
0: well, was uh, it was it was a nice one. I enjoyed that. Yeah,
1: no, I like I like that one. Well, let's kick off, and and Dylan's going to surprise us with his surprise oh, questions okay. that I don't know anything about yet. So it could be dangerous. <laughs>
0: but, um, could be anything.
1: First question for me, Dylan. Uh, sorry, uh, Matt. And then it's Dylan's turn. Is what have you been up to since we last spoke to you? Because you were talking about media and a few other things. What What have you been up to?
0: Yeah, I've been I've been doing as much as the media stuff as I possibly can. I've been doing a few, um, you know, podcasts, Sky Sports News, BT for the National League. Um, yeah, so it, it's been it's been great. It was it was like my first sort of Christmas off from playing. So that was. It was quite nice, even though I, I did catch COVID just before. So, I, But I was managed to be out for Christmas Eve. So that was a nice little bonus. But, um, but yeah, just, just doing that. Um, my son's been off school, ready to go back. He actually goes back tomorrow. So it's, uh, it's been a long, long slog doing, doing the Christmas holidays. But, um, but yeah, just uh, trying to keep busy, trying to keep in the gym, trying to do as much as I possibly can.
1: All right. Well, keep your fingers well, crossed. Keep your because it's Dylan's turn now. <laughs> no, I'm gonna, Matt. No, you just said it's your
2: first Christmas without playing. How did you feel? I mean, I, I'm 55 next week. I'm 55 on Friday, and every Christmas, uh, I miss that Boxing Day feeling. The Christmas Eve when you go when you're at home with your family, or you know, when you have to Christmas Day, you have to have your Christmas dinner with your family, and you have to bugger off to the hotel. And make sure you the hotel. I mean, how did it feel? Because it, it kills me every Christmas, and I'm 55.
0: Yeah, it, do you know it? It was really strange because obviously in the build up to it, I was thinking, right, this is going to be like this is going to be great because yeah, you know, I'm not playing, so I can enjoy myself. We can do because normally, like you said, you know, we used to always do Christmas dinner on Christmas Eve because you know we, I had the family round and we could do it Christmas Eve because you yeah. never know what was going to happen Christmas Day whether. We, you were going to be in in the morning, whether you're in in the afternoon, whatever. So we, we thought we'd always do that. But this year, obviously we were supposed to see all the family and everything, but it just turns out because we, we unfortunately picked up COVID, we had to do a second year in a row and it was just the four of us at home uh, with too much food. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, massively miss massively miss play. And, you know, it's the busiest time of the year, but it's the most enjoyable because it's just, it's thick and fast and, you know, yeah, it's nice. It's nice to have Christmas off, but it's, it's like you said, you you miss the playing, you miss the the competing and the, and the hectic schedule. I think, and not being around. around for the Christmas dinner. <laughs>
2: I think the the banter of everything, you know. When, like say, you, you know, when I was at Leeds, you know, you you, you Christmas Eve, you, like I said, you spent at home. Christmas morning, at ten o'clock, you reported. You trained and by one o'clock. You were in. The, we were in the Hilton. We used to stay at the Hilton at, at Leeds. Um, and, you know, you, you spend Christmas Day kind of, you know, away from your family and friends. Everybody else is, like, you know, at home and, and, and doing stuff, ready to go out and get pissed on Boxing Day, and you're having to, you know, prepare yourself for, for a game on Boxing Day, then have to go home, relax, chill, and then prepare for the, the game on the 28th. Again, it's a bit weird, but, you know, the question that actually I was supposed to ask you, and I'm going to ask you this, you know, because it is a good question, you know, your former teams, West Ham, Wolves and Norwich, you know, obviously Norwich are propping up the league. Wolves, you know, they, you know, are, are getting, you know, mixed results and you know, obviously West Ham are absolutely flying at the moment. You know, uh you know, what's your thoughts on, on, on this season on, on, on your former teams? Well,
0: I'll start, as you say, with, with Norwich. I think it's it's gonna be a struggle, unfortunately, for them. I think um They've sort of attacked it differently this year with regards to you know when they came up the last the, the previous time they didn't spend any money they, they used all the players that got them up from the championship and they gave it a really good go. I think you can see in the performances there some great wins but this this season they've they've spent the money they've changed a lot of their team brought in a lot of players and it's just not working at the moment and the, the results are there to all to see and, and I think it's going to be difficult for them for, till the end of the season. Um, I think Wolves are the sort of the not saying the surprise, but I think when in the summer when um, uh, Nuno left and you thought uh, Bruno Large was coming in and you thought, I didn't really know too much about him, didn't really I thought it was going to be a bit of a disappointing season, but they've seemed to have turned it round. They haven't been performing like great, but they're getting the results and they're, they're, they they doing they're in a really good position in, in the league without actually performing well. So I think for them, it would just be continued to carry on and hopefully the performances will improve. But for West Ham, it's it's just a fantastic opportunity for them to, to break into that top four. They they really are in a, in, in a good you know, vein of form. They've got players that are playing extremely well in their peak um, and they're doing well in Europa League. They're obviously in the next round of the FA Cup. They, they they just seem to be riding that wave at the moment.
2: Oh, good then. So, d- the difference between West Ham and Norwich then? What is it? Is it personnel? Is it sit- signings? Is it management? Is it what's the difference? Because West Ham have always been kind of you know floating around and you know West Ham being West Ham. You know, but what, what you know what what's the difference between West Ham and Norwich City? Forget Wolves. Yeah. You know, Wolves have been steady for the last few years we knew know, but West Ham have now taken it to a different level. Everybody's believing in West Ham now. Yeah. You know, and Norwich have come up again, you know, yeah. from from the, uh, the championship. What's the difference? What's it? what would in your for me, in, in, for me the biggest thing
0: is um for the biggest thing with West Ham at the moment is David Moyes what he's done uh, is is been nothing short of a revelation from when he's come back in. I think he's he's looked and he, he saw the squad before and then he's come back and he's gone right these are the players that i don't don't really suit my style of football or my mentality of how how we're going to play they've gone and he's built a squad now that you see every single player knows exactly what they're doing they work they're all all team players there's first and foremost they all work hard for the team and then they've they're, they're just on a really good run i think you look at declan rice you look at uh, antonio they're just playing their best football at the moment and i think that's down to confidence i th- I think that's down to the manager and what he's done, built in that team. And then the rest of it is everyone else just going off someone else. So like Bowen's had an outstanding season and he's just getting better and better. And then you look for Nels has improved this season. He was, you know, okay last season, but this season he's come to life and he's scoring goals, he's creating goals. And again, everyone that you you just don't you don't necessarily see, except for the West Ham is the work rate. Of that that whole team, the way that they they get back into shape, Moyes has got them solid. They're not conceding as many goals as they used to, uh, and then they've got them players that can affect the can affect the game. And Antonio's scoring; he's having his best season, you know. Uh, and then and and he he's a handful for anyone. So when when he plays and he's playing well, the rest of the team can just move up up the pitch. It can be a hopeful ball up there, even if he's playing against three centre halves, he can. He can, you can know, bully them. You can run them. You can hold the ball up, and then everyone can build up uh, in their play. And and, and and as I said, I just I just think everyone's just riding that wave of you know confidence and consistency. Yeah, and and that's what you can do as a team. You know, there's, I'm sure you've been in teams where you just you just seem to be just oh that's yes. yeah, that shot that shot's gone in. Our, our keeper's made a great save, or you, you just know you're going to score. You go one 0 down, you think it's fine. You know we're going to score, and that's what they're like at the moment.
1: And Matt, do you, do you think, uh, would you say you've still got a strong connection with, with all three of those clubs or is it one more than the other two?
0: No, no to, to be honest, I, I obviously, you know, I started at Gillingham. I have a great, great um, fond memory there. Wolves was a fantastic time. I played for England. We got promoted. Uh, West Ham, I was record signing, spent f- five years playing in the Premier League. It was, it was absolutely incredible. Norwich I had such a good start. And unfortunately, it was just plagued by injury, and and that's just sort of a, a, a downer on it. But it was a, it was a, it's a, it's a great club. Um, so I, I, I you know I look out for everyone's. I'm sure you do as well. You, you just, you look out for everyone's uh, results. There's not one that I look for first. They all sort of come. Luckily, though, know, three of them are in the Premier League, so I could just click on and see them all. Um, but it's, I, I don't necessarily have a favorite. There's, there's spells in. In my career, where I, you know, the enjoyment factor was was great. Like winning promotion at Wolves was just sensational, Um, just such a great experience. Uh, Playing for West Ham, finishing tenth in our first season was was, you know, an outstanding achievement for a club that's just been promoted. Um, And my start at Norwich was 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 great. I scored in my debut, scored in my second game, Um, and then unfortunately, it just it just was not to be there.
2: You say about you know winning promotion. I think that that's the best feeling ever in, from, a, from a football perspective is winning, winning things, winning promotion, yeah. getting your England up, winning, winning championships, winning an FA Cup. I mean, you know, in, in, my, in, in my, my football uh, career, you know, winning promotion at Leeds United to, to get in, back into the old first division, which is the championship now, was like a dream come true, and that the excitement that it generated from within the town, within the people, within the community. It's different class, and I mean, how how you how good was it when you got promoted uh, that first time with Wolves? Was that your first promotion?
0: Yeah, absolutely incredible. Like you said, I think it's just we we we. The, my first year at Wolves, we finished uh, seventh. We finished uh, we missed out on the playoffs by one goal. That was it, and. In that summer, we we signed a few players and pre-season, you could just tell. I think everyone just knew we were gonna have a good season and we blitzed it. Yeah, yeah, I'm saying, you know, we 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 ended up sort of um, went on a bad run towards the end, but then we picked it back up. But we blitzed it and it was one of them that we we knew we were gonna win the game. You know, we went one nil down, we knew we were gonna score two, three. It was just it was a phenomenal experience and to and all of us were sort of a similar age. There was a few older pros like Jody Craddock, who was, you know, magnificent, Um, but that we were all sort of a similar age. And we all sort of, you know, went out on a weekend with everyone, you know, wives and girlfriends as well. We had such a good team spirit. I think that's, you know, it, people don't appreciate how much that drags you through great games, having a, a, a good team spirit, Um, you know, looking at someone else thinking, you know, yeah, you're going to, you're going to back me up in any sort of situation you know if i've made a made a mess of something you're going to you know you're going to help me out um, and winning promotion was just we won it with quite a few games to go as well so it was just it was amazing you know I, like like you know it was just everyone celebrating everyone out you get the trophy the fans we the pitch was you know everyone ran on the pitch we had like the trophy it just Memories to, uh, to you know, to last a lifetime. It was just, it was just amazing.
2: Matt, that's the thing. It's like when I, when I signed for Reading, I'd, I'd left Leeds. I wasn't playing at Leeds, and I got offered to go to Reading, and I went down. Didn't know much about them. Uh, Gordon Strachan, big mates with Mark McGee, and I went and saw the setup. I didn't know any player, and I got my ten thousand pounds signing on fee in nineteen ninety three, and you could put it in your pension. It was tax free, or you can get it in cash. I went into the bookies and we were 33-1 to get promoted, but I didn't know, I'd only been there a week. I didn't know the team. I didn't know the players, didn't know nothing. But i tell you what, if I'd, if I'd have gone into the bookies the following week, that week, I, like you said, I knew in that dressing room that we were going to win things. We were going to get promoted. And if I'd been a week before, uh, sorry, a week later, I would have put that 10 grand on us to get promoted. You know, because I, I got that vibe in the dressing room. You know, I got that, you know, that, that we had that spirit in the dressing room. And it, it, it's football fans will never understand that. You know, they, they don't understand that. They see the team, they see the players, but they don't, they don't understand that to get promoted, to, to be successful, you have to have a good squad of players. You know, you have well, good, you're in
0: every good, single day with, with, with each other as well, aren't you? That's the thing there's always going to be arguments and disagreements, but you know that that is a strong change room and it, it sort of runs itself as well. You know, the managers, obviously the, the main man who makes all the decisions, but you know, we had Mick McCarthy um, who like I think probably is one of my best managers. Well, probably the best manager I've worked with just purely and simply. We was so honest. He was on the training field every day, um, you know, and he had that authority and aura about him when he walked into a room, but the change room dealt with itself to a degree it was it was just it was a really enjoyable place to be as well
2: and matt uh, yeah.
1: you I mean, talked, you talked about the that um changing room environment and the banter and i think it was in two thousand and thirteen you were on the front cover of gay lifestyle magazine attitude you talked about your thoughts on homophobia in football um I've got three questions actually so the first one is you know, do you still think there's a, a big problem in the game? But actually, what I really want to know is, um, did you get get a lot of stick for that? And and how do you feel about being a gay icon invert commas? <laughs> okay, I'll go first. Question first. Um, yes, there's still a long way to go. Um,
0: there's obviously there's there's been a you know strides, but there's there is still a long way to go. Um, I, it, yeah, unfortunately it would football's just a bit behind the times on on everything um, second question I actually when I got asked to do it I I don't don't ask me why it was quite a while ago 2013 that you said I I didn't expect it to be such a big deal I don't think I think I think I was just like yeah no that you know that'd be great and I think it, you know at the time and then when it came out and I yeah, I got hammered by loads of people. I've got so much uh, 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 banter in the change rooms. But just, just in general, it was all I got asked about for about two years. After any interview I did, whether I was playing, I scored or whatever, they would go, oh, great girl, blah, blah, blah. So you did the, the cover of Attitude magazine. And it was just like, it, it, it was such a huge talking point that I didn't sort of necessarily realise how big it was going to be. So, um, I, and I, I'm really glad I did it. I am. I'm, I'm very glad I did it. I think there's, you know, it, it, it's such an important um, thing to, to, for football as well. But also, you know, for me personally, there was, you know, to be asked to do it, there was only David Beckham and Freddie Lundberg that have done it and, and me. So, it's not bad company to keep <laughs>
1: three, three good gay icons then
0: <laughs> exactly yeah i'm not sure me me uh me i remember my 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 wife my my father in your law he got asked like from one of his like golf golf mate or golf people that he was playing with he Goes, i didn't know you like you know, that was gay <laughs> he's like he, he he's not like he's married to my daughter if <laughs> they've got a son <laughs> you know it's just uh just a crazy crazy experience but yeah, one one I'm very pleased that I did.
2: I think that's I think that's actually brilliant. I mean, you know, we we, we like I'm I'm in I'm in Johannesburg now. You know, I spent my time in Polokwane, which is in the back states. I went to Durban, and I'm in Johannesburg now. And there's a, there's such a different variation of people. And you know, I was sat with a couple of coaches, very successful coaches in South African football, and we were at this um, coffee shop and. You know, there's still this, they're, they're still these people that, you know, just don't understand it. And, you know, a lot of people here, um, when, when you sat with them and you're talking to them, you know, they're just the same people, you know? And, and, and other people are walking by and thinking, well, how come you uh, soccer coaches are talking to these people who are six foot four, built like British Bulldogs, and they're wearing a short miniskirt with high heels? Hey, listen, you know, it's it's it, it is where it is, you know, and you can't treat them any different, and and, and I would never do that. And, and I, I'll take my hat off to you, that, Matt, brilliant. I wish I would, I wish i had been a gay icon as well. <laughs> Did you ever get invited, Dylan? <laughs> to be fair, every time I go to London, we always end up in Soho. We go to the Admiral, the, is it the Admiral Duncan? We always go there, me and my friends, and all, we always go there, and we always end up in GAY. The reason we always end up in GAY. The music's great. The women in there are absolutely fantastic. You don't get any asshole because everybody knows that you're straight, and it's it's just a great evening. And and every time we're in London, we don't go anywhere else. That's where we go just for a laugh, a bit of banter, and you know it used to be string fellas, but obviously that's that's, that's changed now. But you know it's. Um, it's yeah it's it, it's 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 great I didn't know that Matt I didn't know that he he told Matt Matt told me and I'm thinking no
1: ways but no that's brilliant that's a great question Mark. <laughs> Dylan I'm going I'm to leave the final question to you so choose anything you want.
2: Right I am going to give you I'm, I'm actually going to find the question that you asked me to ask him and it was right um and I'm, I'm going to lose it here oh I've got it here no have I? yeah no 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 oh I've
1: lost the question. It was the last question. What was the last question, Mark? The last question was, if you could make one change in football right now. I've got it, I've got it.
2: Go on. I've got it it now. If you could make one change in football, and I would change VAR because I hate VAR. um, If you could change one thing in football right now, what would it be and why?
0: Okay. I mean, I'm sort of with you a little bit on the VAR, but to a degree. The biggest thing for me is... You know when a player runs through, everyone knows he's offside, but they don't put their flag up, and then everyone makes that
3: sprint
0: for like sixty yards, and and then he has a shot. It's saved or he scores, and then they put the flag up, and people get injured. Like I, I just it just annoys, it frustrates the life out of me because you think something can happen in that. You know, they, everyone knows he's offside. Just put your flag up, blow, it's offside. I get it that you've got to play on. So if they score and it is onside, it's not offside. But when it's blatant like that, just put your flag up because someone's making a like a, a sprint back to, to save this. He could pull a hamstring, could do something. And then there's been so many times that people have done it. They've they've made a tackle, they've injured someone, someone's got injured from that. Or because of they're getting so frustrated, they then it starts a bit of a ruckus and then new the people are getting booked. And that is all because the flag's just not gone up. And it's blatantly obvious, everyone knows. Just stop it. Put your flag up, and away we go. And, right,
2: uh,
3: we'll one, one
2: last one quickly. Yes. I just, again, I'm thinking, management. Do you fancy going back into football? Good um,
3: question.
2: Good, good question. Yeah,
0: I think. Look, I, I've, I did my, I did my badges, um, but I think for me right now, I really, I'm really enjoying the punditry and the media side. Um, I think if I was going to go straight into it now, I'd be a bit of a more of a frustrated player rather than a coach I think well I might as well have just carried on playing (laughs) even though I know I think it was the right time I just think um, at the moment I think uh, I'm enjoying the punditry side I've got my badges so I'll never say never but um, manager wise I think that's a different one from a coach to a manager is for me it would be totally different I get I get it but it's it is like a 24 hours a day you know, full-time everything you've got to, you've got to be all in otherwise is there's no point doing it so
1: I think for me at the moment I'm going to hopefully continue with the punditry and see where that goes all right Matt well great to have you on the show again we'll invite you back again if you, if you want to come back on we'll we'll cool. set some questions and then ask you something completely different yeah <laughs> <laughs> so that's good to be yeah all right Keeps thanks me on my toes. thank you and now I'm joined by Chris Beasley, who's a football writer for the Liverpool Echo and you've covered Liverpool mm-hmm. and Everton, but uh, now, now you're exclusively Everton. So welcome to the show. And uh, I want to start by asking you if, if you're a fan of, of either club. I'm
4: a, I'm a lifelong Evertonian.
1: Uh, and why did you pick Everton and not Liverpool? Because that's that's the thing in the city, isn't it? You, you choose one or the other.
4: When, um, when, when I was... Um... Um, a young boy, um, both fortunately, in uh, both Everton and Liverpool were um, were both doing really well at, around that time. I mean, I'm, I'm unfortunately uh, of an age where Everton's probably best ever side is just before my own start of my football consciousness. So that all conquering theme of our Kendalls in the mid 80s, that's just before my own um, football memory start. Um, we were actually talking about this today, I, I think. 88 89 is probably the first season I can remember first Derby match I remember was actually the game after Hillsborough because it was the first game after the Hillsborough disaster and um, Liverpool hadn't played I think for about 15 days or something like that they played the friendly up at Celtic um, sort of give themselves a bit of sharpness and a bit of a nice game for them to go into with Kenny Dowdley's but yeah that was the first derby I remembered it was nil nil on the night but it was it was um, it was a great occasion. On, on, on Merseyside of, um, they had the scarves um, sort of intertwined around the perimeter of the picture at Goodison Park so that was the first derby that I remember and the second derby that I remember was the cup final that year which obviously Liverpool won um, 3-2 uh, after extra time but it was, it was a strange game really because uh, I think we'll see um, emotions really much um, on a high fare, as you can imagine obvious reasons that but you no know, I'd, I'd always um, wanting to be um, a sports journalist but you know Everton's been my team and I've I've covered covered them I've been fortunate enough to cover them both for a a number of years now.
1: My background is in sports journalism as well it goes back to 89 when I started and it was right at the end of uh, typewriters would you believe yeah so I started my career using a typewriter and then you know it's kind of changed so much since then how do you report in such a competitive fast paced environment with everything online? How, how do you go about doing that? And how do you go about representing yeah. the club and the fans? Yeah,
4: yeah it, 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 it's come full circle for myself. It is just totally revolutionized. Now, I mean, I was, um, started a bit after yourself, um, but I I started in, two, in 2000 and, um, the internet was just starting out there and we didn't have internet in our office. Um, it was a big thing when we, when we had the one machine that the internet and, in uh, so sort of just seeing the end of that obviously didn't have typewriters still. We were on computers by that stage. Well, I mean, I've had colleagues who have, um, had RSI because of, you know, using the old uh, typewriters and it was, you know, it was almost like a professional hazard, unfortunately for those, those older journalists. So I've seen the back end of that sort of real end of the way that journalism was because, um, my father-in-law actually was a, was a, a journalist. Started, he was on the Liverpool Echo moved on to the Nationals and was at the Daily Mail for, for a number of years, Stephen Oldfield. And um, he, he totally loved the profession, even though it sort of chewed him up and spat him out. He ends up taking an early retirement just because of the strains of the job. But he's so passionate about it. But I think if you put him in the environment today in 2021, you'd find it totally alien to the sort of the world that he inhabited. And uh, sort of um, methods that um, he used in regards to being professional from uh, covering the football teams. I think we have a quite a unique position as as the, the local newspaper. We we go in and we do a lot of stuff with with the national titles, but um, that there is a there is a distinction um, between us. On the one hand, we can't just be a cheerleader for the club, and I don't like that when there's. I mean, I see it sometimes with some of, the, some of the the younger journalists and particularly with Liverpool because they've done so well in recent years. You can almost turn up and say, oh, how, how great are Jurgen Klopp's Liverpool and never have to really critique them too often. Maybe more so with the owners. FSG, they've made more controversial decisions and sometimes have to be taken to task. But it's very seldom that um, Liverpool really have merited much criticism in recent years. So you've got to be careful and not just be that fan with a keyboard and uh, I think you have got to be more objective and that's something I, I always um, try to do I mean these was those um, little things some people pick me up when um, we've been doing the podcasts and uh, I'd never refer to Everton as we in a professional environment I mean some of my colleagues do that and I, I you know if I was doing that if you've met you you know down the street or in the pub or whatever I mean that would change but if i in my professional capacity as a, as a reporter, I, I wouldn't do that. Um, but the Echo, we cover the club from top to bottom. Nobody covers the two teams the way we do, from like first team, which obviously everyone's interested in, but you know, to the under 23s, the youth team, the women's team, or all these different levels of the club. And then all the, all the off the field stuff they do. I you know Everton are very proud of their um, off the field work, Everton in the community, huge tragedies. There's so much for the the local area, and that's one of the big things with Everton now, as I'm sure you appreciate with the stadium move, now that they're, they're moving forward, they're, they're leaving the area where they've been since since 1892, now Goodison Park, first-purpose-built football stadium in England, and they're keen to leave a legacy there, uh, in the Walton area where, where they play. Um, Goodison Park won't exist, it's not going to be almost, it won't be kept like Highbury with a facade, but it will become the site will be for the community it's not just going to be bulldozed and turned into a, a supermarket or some flats um, it will still serve the community so i think you know we cover them like i say from from top to bottom but i i, I like to think that we can still be objective ultimately we're all in the game because we are first and foremost football fans and we're very passionate about the sport and they, a lot of us of the two clubs um in general, I mean, there's a perception amongst some Evertonians. They use the phrase "the red echo." There seems to be some sort of idea that there's a Liverpool bias, but I think I'd tell you now, same as probably any office, any workplace within the city, there's a mix of blues, reds, and those of other um, footballing persuasions, and uh, obviously not so much not on the football desk, but those who have no interest in in football. And um, yeah, we, we we've got we've got a um, sort of it's, it's a bit of a balancing act, really, of, of you know, how we actually um, um, cover the clubs. But I, I like to think we we do it well and we do it fairly. I mean, there's been times, I suppose, with any football club we can get precious and uh, our journalists have been banned, not for a prolonged period, but they've sometimes got in hot water with the club for writing certain things. But I think we've always got to have that, that freedom to express our opinion so long as it's fair.
1: And and how important to you are the, the relationships that you've built up over You know, 16 years, and perhaps some of the more recent relationships and that kind of level of trust. So, you might get told stuff, and it's off the record, and so on. Yeah. Now, how how much of a factor is is that in your job?
4: Yeah, um, yeah. That contact is always going to be a big thing in journalism, and I suppose that that the higher you go, the more important it is. I think with the the people who are on on the on the nationals, it's paramount, but also for the ones who are on our patch um, too. yeah, they'd, um, it, it's not, there's not as much as it as it used to be. I think that, um, to a certain degree, the journalists are now kept at arm's length. I'm not saying that. I mean, we've got a co- colleague, Phil Kirkbride, who's our, our main Everton correspondent. And he I think he does the job very well with an excellent network of contacts. But he's having to work in a tougher environment than, say, his predecessors, like we've got... Um, colleague david prentice who recently wrote a book um about his his time covering everton over a a number of years um you call a a grand old team to report a bit of a pun on an everton song and he was probably starting of a similar time to yourself and a great rapport with um lots of people at the club particularly the managers who he who he would report on i think when he when he um started I'm trying to think whether it would have been it's a good chance it would have been one of Howard Kendall's spells but um, obviously moving on to um, the likes of um, Walter Smith and then David Moyes I, I mean particularly with Walter Smith who we lost recently i very sad on you know, just 73 um, and Walter maybe had a an ex, sort of a exterior character he, he would be in the archetypal Dower Scots as English people might say but Dave got to know him really well, and he was um, telling some great stories about the sort of the access he would get to Walter Smith on a daily basis—tea and toast, and the training ground, and an informal chat—and that's how you get the best stories, and that's also you know, you get the rapport with the manager, and you get his trust. Um, he actually ended up Walter Smith ended up being a guest at his wedding. He initially gave him an invite to the, the evening do, and he said, "No, where's my where's my invite to the day do?" and um, I mean that's terrific, and so you're going to get the best stories if the manager trusts you like that. Um, I mean, he, he told a famous story about when um, Francis Jeffers was wanting to leave the club, and at the time Walter Smith had to be seen as um, telling Dave off for actually breaking the story because it wasn't supposed to have come from him. But you know, it was his way of getting that information out there, and it was it was an accurate story, and it was a great story the Echo, and then similar when Duncan Ferguson was sold behind the managers back to Newcastle United. Again, because he had the trust of the manager and he was able to get the, the accurate story on that. It's tougher now because clubs do keep you at arm's length. There's a lot of it, and it's not just exclusive to Everton and Liverpool. It's across the Premier League and then probably going down into the Football League as well to a certain extent. It's not like we're, we're trying to unearth any sort of great scandals in there, but just to, to know how the, day, the club um, operates on a day-to-day basis and, you know, you've got the, the best interests at heart. You're not going to twirl them, as, as it were, and uh, sort of do a negative story about. it. I mean, that would be in nobody's um, interest, you know, unless, obviously, there was a good reason for that tale. But uh, most of the time, you're going you to want to put a, a, a positive spin on things and make the club look in a good light. So, I mean, that that can be tough. And I have seen that, that sort of um, access eroded throughout my career, certainly.
1: There's obviously, you know, with the, the newspaper sales in decline and, and everything's online now, where, where do you see things going from here with all the, you know, the, the high level of importance with yeah. social media and so on?
4: Yeah, it's, it, it's, it's interesting because it was very despondent for a number of years. For the best part of my career, it's just been cuts, 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 in that you know that there's an inevitable decline of the print product. Newspapers have had a really good run. We've had a run of about three hundred years, and um, the, this sad fact is now that the, the moment a newspaper sat on on that shelf in in the newsagents, you know, it's already out of date. And that wasn't a problem for a long time. I remember as a child myself, when when you go on holidays abroad, we wouldn't know the football results for, for over twenty four hours because we we'd buy we'd wait for the English papers to come. we were a day old, and then we. We'd hurriedly uh, run into the shops and and some Spanish resort to see it, however Everton had gone on the day before. It seems like ludicrous now in today's sort of in, instant gratification, instant information age. I remember my, my dad um, going storming back into a shop on holiday because the this early edition of one of the British Nationals didn't carry the Everton match report in there. We went and swapped it for another title. But yeah, so it is inevitable that print will decline and has declined, but. For a long time, I felt that its decline was hastened by the the resources being pulled from under the rug. I remember a colleague who got out of the game saying, yes, it is declining, but you don't have to put the pillow over the head for newspapers in there. For a long time, they were neglected. But it's strange, really, because it's been such a tough time for all businesses this last year or so. Reach you and the company own the Liverpool Echo, they own own a number of titles like the Daily Mirror, the, the Star, and the Express. Now we've actually had a huge explosion in the number of staff we've taken on, certainly in sport. So for years we've had, like I said, uh, just a uh, decline in numbers in all elements of the business. Then for the first time in about two decades, at least, certainly in my professional lifetime, we've had a big recruitment drive now, and we now currently on the Liverpool Echo we've got more people working on sport than ever before and even in my whole professional time as a as a journalist which goes back over two decades and it is different um, certainly there's there's a there's a lot of um, I certainly say I wouldn't say we do, people might accuse us of clickbait at times but I don't I would certainly say we don't do clickbait stories but what we do do is we have to have headlines which will entice people in as long as it's not misleading people but the combination of all the more, say, fluffy stories and the sort of reacting to trends and things like that, part of my new role that I've taken on is trying to be more dedicated to those longer reads and those more in-depth stories, because we know there's still a place for, we know that they're not gonna get the easy hits necessarily the way that um, some of the other stories are, but it's the same with the, I suppose, as any sort of media on, on television because Coronation Street and EastEnders are the two programmes everyone watches the most. doesn't mean that they're high art or anything like that, but there's a place for everything. And, and obviously, um, we, we, we're we showing our dedication to both clubs and we, we're, we're trying to show that we are still interested in getting those in-depth stories and those serious reads. You know, obviously, the, the, the Athletic came in and made a big splash a couple of years ago, paid a lot of money to get a lot of um, well-connected journalists in there, providing that quality coverage and, and we've now got as I was going to say the manpower but for the first time in a, a number of years we have got uh, quite a few female staff joining the team now as well and we've certainly got the the bodies in there to sort of dedicate that, that sort of coverage but yeah it's, it, it's it's totally different than from what I came in I think I came right in at the end of sort of old journalism like I said minus the typewriters but yeah certainly before the internet age. Uh,
1: and, that, and finally uh, Chris if if we can touch on, you know, your thoughts on Everton and Liverpool moving moving forward, not just this season, but into the future yeah. with Everton Stadium. And, you know, we've seen it with Spurs. They, they went to the, the new stadium and, you know, you look at um, Anfield and uh, Goodison, Old Trafford, you know, mm-hmm. um, that, those type of venues are fortresses. Obviously, Spurs have had a bit of a you know, bad time of things, Arsenal, yeah. similar similar situation. Kind of, you know, bring out your crystal ball now, look into the future, maybe five years or something with the new stadium with Everton and, you know, what's happening at Liverpool. Where where do you think the the clubs will be, you know, moving forward?
4: Yeah, well, I'll, I'll start with Liverpool. But um, I think, obviously, the, the, the future is very rosy for them because they're one of the incumbent um, big six and people don't like that phrase sometimes, but it's a reality. It's a financial reality. And the way that football is set up now, it um, rewards the teams that have the greatest resources and it keeps them in that place. And I don't see Liverpool losing that position in the foreseeable future. I think there's I think that the next three years are very important because Jurgen Klopp has been very open that he intends to, to leave in 2024. And I think that Liverpool should make hay while the sun shines and why they've got Jurgen Klopp, one of the top football managers in the world. Whatever you think about him, he's he's a prolific winner. He improves players by a great degree with the hard work he puts on on the, on the training ground. And I think these are an important three years. I mean, he's got the aging in front three. Now, what does he do with that? Mohamed Salah's new contract is a big issue. Will he ultimately sign it? I imagine he will do. But obviously, there's work to do with um, the natural progression of, of the of the team. But I think that there could be a dip when Klopp goes. I suppose it's only inevitable. I'm not sure it's going to be sort of, of Alex Ferguson proportions at Manchester United. Um, obviously, he's been there. It will it'll have been there for almost nine years by the time he finishes. But nothing, nothing like um, either Ferguson or Wenger. So yeah, I think that, that they will always be there or, there apart for the, or thereabouts for the foreseeable future although there could be a drop-off when, when clock does go. For Everton, for those sort of like the reverse of those reasons to say Liverpool will do well, it's tough for Everton. And that's why Everton... But the new stadium is such an important issue for Everton. Um, it's been going on for at least a generation seriously. Um, I remember it being mooted when I was about 16 in the mid-90s. Peter Johnson had an idea of building a stadium in an unspecified location which could have been way out of the city. Then in the early 2000s, they had a, another chance to go by the, the Mersey waterfront with the King's Dock project. Um, it was seen as a chance of a lifetime for Everton to get that um, prime spec on the, uh, the Liverpool waterfront. And when that fell through, it really looked sort of doom and gloom from Everton on the stadium front. They had a hugely controversial attempt to move out to Kirby, which is a satellite town just outside of Liverpool. Lot of um famous footballers like Phil Thompson came from there, Leighton Baines. So, and you know, they're very much seen as scouters. But I, I think that for for Everton to go out there out of sight, out of mind, beyond beyond the city boundaries would have been suicide. And I for one was delighted when that fell through. I thought that would have been a ridiculous move. Um so to get um the current site, which work is now moving at a pace, they've almost It's a very difficult site to work on. I mean, I live over in New Brighton, so for people who don't know the geography of the area, I'm the opposite side of the river, but I can see where the stadium is being built. So during lockdown, I was doing a lot of runs in the morning. I looked across and you could see where it's being built. You still can't see much above ground now, but they've almost filled in the dock now to actually make it. The foundations are starting for so you can actually build a stadium on there because it was actually a very difficult site to build on. But once it's built it's going to be an iconic stadium because it's going to be we've got a lot of ocean liners come into Liverpool. and It'll be one of the first things that they see visitors to the city will be Everton stadium because Anfield is up on a hill. You can see that it, you can, it, it sort of dominates the skyline as it was. You can see Goodison as well, but cause it's in the Valley, it's, it's, it doesn't sort of stick out the way Anfield does certainly since the new main stand was built. Um, so the stadium's really important from, from a revenue view, not just from um, the, the idea of a, a, it's it's nice to have this lovely stadium on the on the waterfront, because obviously Goodison will be much missed. It's it's one of the last sort of great grounds of the golden age of, of English football, but you know, it's got all those pillars and obstructed views, and the series been looking for a relocation for 25 years on and off. Um it'd be a big thing because it'll improve Everton's revenue, but it's difficult for Everton, as it is for every club outside of that big six. Newcastle are going to give it a go now. If they do avoid relegation, that could put them back a year if they don't. But there's only so many good players out there. There's only s- <laughs> um, so much money you can spend. Evan have made a real mess of it this last five years. Farhad Mashiri came in, hugely ambitious owner, with the club's best intentions. He's going to be the man who fulfills Everton's stadium destiny. But from a footballing point of view, it's been nothing short of shambolic. Six managers in, in five years now, apart from Ancelotti, every one of them was sacked. They were hoping Ancelotti would be the man to bring him into the new stadium, but ultimately when Real Madrid came calling, he couldn't turn that down. And to be honest, the football was actually underwhelming. Under Ancelotti, it was very dull. and Bizarrely, it seems for a man who's failed relatively at Everton, he, get, he goes back to Real Madrid. So it has gone to Rafa Benitez, now, and uh, a hugely controversial appointment because of him being a former Liverpool man. But again, he, he's, sort of a, he's a veteran coach in, in, his, in his early 60s, so you don't know how long he's going to last. They hope he's the man to lead them into the, the, the new stadium. But whoever it is, I, I think it, it, it's going to be tough. Everton just need to win a trophy. Um, this is the longest trophy drought in the club's history. Um, what are we on now? 26 years and counting. They'd only ever gone 24 years previously before that without winning a trophy. A whole generation of Evertonians have grown up without them seeing a, a trophy win. Um, we understand it's realistic, like I said, for those aforementioned reasons. Winning a league title is not realistic now and is not realistic for the foreseeable future unless there's a big change in the way that football is. And that, unfortunately, I hope it never does come to this but that could be the big six going off into a European Super League like they threatened to do and, and competing in a rump Premier League. I hope that never happens. But yeah, well, they just need to win a cup. You see teams with similar resources, Leicester City, even West Ham this season with David Moyes, of all people, outperforming them. So, you know, so it's been a real tough time for Everton. They just want to win that that trophy because you know, he, he, he's pumped that much, but he's already pumped, I think, about half a billion pounds into the club. And now it's gonna be private investment, but the stadium's gonna cost another half a billion as well. So it is good, it is better times ahead, and the stadium will really help with that. But it's also tough for them actually fulfilling the, those ambitions that they, they want to fulfill. But that's the same across football because the way that the sport is is geared up with the Champions League to reward those already in power. So I wish I could paint a, a brighter picture, and the stadium will certainly do that. It'll be a brand, you know, it will be a brand new start for. Club, but yeah, it, it it it's going to be tough as it is for everyone outside that that big six.
1: Well, I'm sure they'll uh, over the next few years they will give you plenty to write about. That that's uh, <laughs> that, that's a uh, a given, I think. um But look, Chris, thanks ever so much for joining us. Really great to have you on the on the show and for you to give us that insight not not just on Everton and Liverpool, but on uh sports journalism as well, because it's still one of the most coveted professions. If you like, people want to get into it, so. Mm. Uh, yeah really really great to have you on thanks for your time
4: much appreciation mark thank you
1: and now i'm delighted to welcome dan bratcher who is peterborough united's women's reserve team manager welcome to the show dan thank you very much mark and i was really interested to to get you on actually because um there's been quite a bit of talk about bringing back reserve teams for men's football um so it's quite interesting to speak to somebody who's working with a reserves team in in the women's game. Uh, what are some of the sort of key benefits do you think in in terms of bringing players through and and that kind of support for the first team from your perspective?
5: So it's interesting. So obviously from a from a playing perspective, obviously nearly thirty two now myself uh, coming through at sixteen seventeen there in the early early two thousands it was your pathway is under 18s, reserve football and then senior football. Um, so the reserves were seen as that that step. And that's the way it's being seen at, at Posh at the moment. It's uh, We've got a lot of young girls. So most of my girls are 16, 17, 18. Um, and the first team do have a lot of girls that age as well, but they're kind of mixed in with the, the regulars, the experienced players. Um, so for me at the moment, it's, it's getting a lot of the girls either that they've they've just come through from under 16s because there isn't an under 18s at Peterborough United, which is which is quite tough. So it's a big step from under 16s football into a very established league in the East, Medli- in the East Midlands League. So you've got your established teams like Derby Counties in there, even though that's their under 23s and the, the Nottingham Forests in there. Again, it's another under 23 team. But they're teams that are established, they play together. And the girls kind of come through into the reserve team, maybe from a very successful under-16 setup, and they automatically expect to win every single game and straight away it hits them. It's, they're playing against players that know how to put their body about, they're not scared to put a tackle in and it's a very wide awakening for the girls as in, do I want to carry on? Is, is football for me or do I want to, to shirk it off and maybe play with my friends at a, a development level? Um, so that's what I've seen at the moment. We have seen a lot of uh, a lot of numbers coming and going. Um, some girls would rather go play with their friends uh, in a local Sunday league, which is fair enough. Some some need that step to to maybe build that confidence. And then there's others that have dug in, and obviously success for a reserves manager is pushing players into the first team. And we've already had three or four girls get their chance, and two have already established themselves now as first team players or first team squad players, which is which is all I want to do. So that's where yeah. it is for my half.
1: And some of the criticism that's been levelled uh, in the men, men's game about, you know, the lack of reserve teams and, and so on is that you don't, like you said, you, that if someone's coming up from, you know, let's say they, they come up from the youth team and then they would go into uh, a reserve team, they get that experience of playing against, you know, wily, perhaps older, more experienced players in terms of the physical stuff that goes on but do you think do you think that's um a a tough situation especially coming up from under 16s to coming into that environment is that one of your biggest challenges do you think
5: yeah I'd say that as with experience from this year that does put a put a lot of girls off um they don't want to to it's, it's almost and Probably same with sixteen-year-old lads as well. These days, they probably don't want to compete. They want to play and they want to win. And um, there's almost that that generational um, obsession with winning and playing, playing fancy, nice football. And it's not always going to work like that. It's sometimes you have to compete and you have to dig and you have to work to to gain those experiences and to learn those niche parts of the game that you probably wouldn't get in a easy successful environment so I think the, the reserve environment for me is perfect to, to nurture those those players and especially talented players that maybe need an extra year in that that area where they can develop um, if they're not ready for that first team set, step up which can be a big step up from under 16s or even under 18s obviously one or two may make that jump and it's, they find it quite easy but there's always going to be three or four others that need an extra year or two getting an experienced hand around their shoulder and going, right, this is how we do it. This is how we play someplace. Sometimes we do this. Sometimes we do that and getting a kick in or two from another from a physical team. Um, and I think it, it all helps in the grand scheme of things. And especially with the way it is with a lot of 16, 17 year old girls or even if they were lads at another team or another club. It's the parents there as well. So the parents get to experience it as well. Um, so you're almost taking the parents along for that ride as well with you. Um, and then, like we said at the beginning, it's they make that decision themselves. Do Is that something I want to do? And a lot of the girls now are going, yep, yeah, this is something for me. Working hard, turning up, and then going to the first team manager, look, this is what I'm doing. I'm working hard. Maybe I should get my chance. Obviously, that's not for me to say, but... The, the girls themselves are pushing that barrier now to, to the first team and going, look, this is what I can do. So I think, I think the, the reserve level has, has uh, given them that opportunity to do that and express themselves.
1: And, and how much of an element is it about the result, you know, trying to win games? Is it, is it all about development of players? Is it mostly about that or is it kind of 50-50 between all that stuff and, and trying to win the games?
5: So the, the main aim at the start of the season, um, so I came in as the assistant at the start of the season, um, and our targets were given bridge the gap between the first team and reserve team in terms of ability. So there's been always been quite a gap. First team got promoted last year, reserves got promoted last year, um, and there's still two or three divisions between the two teams. And I think only one or two players have been progressed into the first team over the past two or three years. So it was the case of the reserves haven't, it's either not been good enough or just not been ready to make that step. So going into the league they're in and now there's that expectation of we need the quality of player and team overall to be better. Um, So success for us at the moment is producing three or four players rather than one or two. And there's always going to be that expectation, especially at a club like Peterborough United as well, where they expect you to be competitive and win more than you lose. Um, obviously it's easier said than done when you've got a lot of young girls who are playing their first first year at senior football um, but it's it's a learning curve and you hope that each week you just better the previous performance so that's all I can ask for at the moment.
1: What sort of level of support do you get from the club in general so from the the men's side and, and the, the fans of, of the of the club so do you feel like you know obviously you probably get a fair bit of support for the the women's first team but at that level are you is it mostly the players and the, the parents or do you still get some support from from the club as a whole
5: so the the club as a whole so um, my direct uh, boss is bobby coppin um who is recently a retired pro footballer um, and he's he's been fantastic he pushes a lot to to get as included as much as, as the first team does. Um, so we have our ph- photographer that comes for all the games. We do all the media, the same as the first team. Um, and home games, are everything's advertised just as it is with the first team. Um, so they try and make it as inclusive as possible for the reserves. Obviously there always is going to be that gap where they they do focus on that, that first team. Um, and that's just, Something that the girls sometimes have to get used to, that they may get missed on the, on the other occasion. Um, and that's, that's the way it is. The first team does take priority. Um, but I'd say overall, the, the reserves have had the same, the same access to, to media and the same um, coverage media-wise and social media-wise. Um, so I'd say there's nothing to, to complain about for that, from the reserves perspective.
1: Uh, and final question is is about the profile of the game in general, and and how um, perhaps you're, you're benefiting from that. Have, have you seen any positives that have filtered through, you know, down into uh, your reserves team, for example, in terms of the you know increased TV coverage and the women's game is is getting more exposure. Um, is that filtering through to what you're doing?
5: Oh, certainly. There's um, just just starting from the bottom with general interest in girls and women reaching out, wanting to do trials or just train with us just just to get their fitness up. And obviously that we can't say yes to everyone because we we want to set a standard for the first team reserves and make it as professional as possible. But we have a foundation team below us and then there's obviously the under 16s and below and they've got the Shadow Academy. Um, so just starting from the bottom with, in terms of inclusivity, inclusivity and getting people involved if they reach out we want them to to have that opportunity to express themselves and then we can find their level from there um in terms of like what you said with regards to the exposure of the game um it's becoming more and more common now with the the girls discussing the football rather than something else outside of all the social life it's uh and the same obviously it's a on the flip side it's the same with with the lads it's you go to football you discuss football then you play football and it's it's happening the same with the girls now there there's that common interest because it's it's there out in your face now and it's everywhere and it's great to see that the the parents are there the friends support them and they're all actively interested and involved in the women's game and it, it can only it can only get better from there.
1: All right, Dan, well, great to, to have you on. Thanks for coming on as a guest and wish you well for the, for the rest of the season and, and hopefully you'll get a few more players moving through to the first team.
5: Thank you very much, Mark. Appreciate it.
1: And now it's time for football fans from around the world. And this week we've got not one, but two West Ham fans, one from the USA and one from Peru. And first let's talk to Juan Pedro Rafo, who is a West Ham fan in Lima in Peru. Um, welcome to the show, Juan Pedro. First of all, tell me why you started supporting West Ham.
6: Uh, well, hello, thank you for, for the invitation, and sorry if my English isn't very good, but I will try to do my best. Uh, well, how the first time I well, I always I was always a fan of football, and because of that of the Premier League, but I didn't follow any club specifically, so. Uh, around 2013, I was returning from a school trip, and I remember I was talking to my friends about football and about great movies from football, right? So one of, of the movies uh, we were talking about was the movie uh, the movie Hooligans, about uh, there was some fans, and I haven't I I haven't watched it at the time. So when I arrived home, I I saw it and I liked it. And for me, it was very interesting. Here in Peru, I'm a fan of Universitario Deportes, which is the biggest club here in Peru. I have the most idols, never been to second division, I've reached a, a Libertadores final, so it's the biggest club here. But what uh, got my attention about Western was how the fans uh, were so much in love with the club and um, were crazy about the club. That is an it's a club that it's not usually uh, playing for the first uh, places. Uh, on the present day, usually uh, I am a middle team uh, on the middle of the table, sometimes plays for not being relegated. Uh, so that's what, what got my attention about West Ham that the fans are so much in love with the club that is not a. Uh, uh, doesn't always have the best performance right and uh, from there I started watching some games because here in Peru is, is, or at that time it was really difficult to find Western matches uh, they only streamed them when they were playing the, uh, or Manchester United or Chelsea or Liverpool right uh, and also I started playing FIFA with West Ham because I thought it was a good team to play FIFA on on the career mode because it's that mode where you, you are the manager of the team and you can make some transfers and you play in, in different tournaments. So that's how I started uh, knowing about West Ham, uh, knowing about the players. And then when DirecTV bought the the rights to stream as the, the Premier League here in South America, they stream all the matches. So I could watch uh, all the Western games. And that's how I, I think I really became a Western fan by watching all, all, all the games, knowing all the players, uh, knowing about the history of Western. And well, that's how I became a fan.
1: And you must be, you must be happy with the season so far. What, what are your thoughts about um, the first half of the season?
6: I think we're having a great season, uh, except for this last month, December. But I think we were having a great season. In all, in all the tournaments we're playing, uh, well, we are we're good at the Premier League, we're good at the Europa League, uh, and we have been having a a great performance. But I think we are not going to be able to uh, sustain this performance if we don't do some signings on on this transfer window, because I think we ha- we have a, a small squad. Um, and, and, and I wanted
1: to ask you obviously, the, the manager is going to have a part to play in, in that. Um, you know, he's very well known, David Moyes, for um, bringing talent to, to clubs. Um, West Ham, you know, he seems to now have a really good relationship with, with the fans. What are your thoughts about David Moyes as, as a manager
6: for West Ham? I think he, he's a great manager because he understood what Western means for the fans and he transmitted that energy to the players. And I think that is very important. So uh, putting aside uh, all the tactics and all the things, I think the players need to know what it means to play for West Ham. And I think David Moyes has done a great job doing that. And that's one of uh, uh, the biggest uh, Aspects that have made us play well.
1: And my final question, I uh, just need a, a prediction from you for the, the position that, that West Ham will finish this season.
6: Well, I think we're going to be six or five. I don't think we're going to be... I think we're going to be in an international tournament. I don't think it's going to be the Champions League. But I think we are going to be on the Europa League again.
1: Well, I've got um, I've got David in in the USA coming up next, and I know that the two of you know each other as as West Ham fans. Um, so I'm going to ask David the same questions. But Juan Pedro, it's been fantastic to speak to you, our first guest from Peru. So uh, great to have you on the show. And we're joined this time by David Lang, who's a West Ham fan in Boston in the USA. Welcome David, I'm gonna start by asking you how you started um, supporting West Ham, how that came
3: about. Uh, well, my football support started when I was young. Um, my mother is Italian, so I'm half Italian and I would spend summers there. And I was more into the national team just because of that's what we could see in the summer. But then as uh, games began to be available in the United States, I started getting a lot more into club team soccer and realized it was even more passionate than national team soccer. And a lot of my friends took me to bars where the Premier League was on, and um, I just love the fact that West Ham had passionate supporters. I love, I love that they weren't one of the big six, and uh, yeah, just like there's no, there was no seem to be like glory hunters supporting West Ham, and I really enjoyed that.
1: Uh, and that we're at the midway stage of the season now. Uh, talk about, you know, how you think West Ham are doing at the moment
3: compared to what you were hoping
1: for at the start of the season?
3: I think um, we started the season strongly. We started with the same form we had taken from the previous season. Um, but then to, to the user of uh, your two starting center backs, that, that's a big blow, um, especially with the understanding they had together. Um, I don't think Craig Dawson and Issa Diop are an ideal pairing, especially because Issa Diop is not a left footer and he's playing on the left side. Um, So that makes it um, difficult for them. So for us to have tread water with them, we lost to Southampton and Arsenal, but then to get back on track, to be in sixth, to have made past the group stage of the Europa League, um, not have to play in that round, um, that first round with the teams who um, dropped down from uh, Champions League, um, I think we're where we want to be.
1: Uh, and how much of that success is, is down to the management of, of David Moyes? And, and what do you what do you think about uh, David Moyes as a manager for, for your club?
3: Well, I think it's the majority of it, or it's immensely due to David Moyes. Um, I think the, during his first stint as West Ham manager, I think uh, the supporters were um, a little wary of him, wary of his style of play, wary with the... Um, Kind of the recent turn he had at um, Sunderland and Man U um, and the team he managed in Spain, I believe it was Real Sociedad, I forget their name, but he had not had good results with them. But since he's come to West Ham and he's actually had two stints at West Ham, uh, but he's really, really shown great man management skills, great ability to motivate the players. Um, By all accounts, the clubhouse is a great place to be in. There's great team spirit. No matter what, um, they they seem to keep their shape. Um, They seem to follow the manager's game plan. Um, And they really seem to have great fitness levels. So I think so much of this is down to David Moyes. He's resurrected kind of some players' um, careers. We got Craig Dawson for two million pounds. And granted, he's not... And he's had some great performances. He's had some bad performances too. But um, for David Moyes to get what he's gotten out of a Craig Dawson, I just think that's a testament to his management skills. So I'm obviously, you know, everyone's happy with the job he's done. You'd be, it's hard to find anyone moaning about David Moyes when at the time of his first appointment and even his second appointment, uh, people were not happy about that. The average West Ham supporter was not happy, let's say. And and final
1: question, as I always do, I'm going to ask you for a prediction for which position you think West Ham are going to, finish in you can give me a position that your heart says and that your head says as
3: well if you want okay yeah it's it's really tough uh especially with the injury situation I described it looks like we'll get um Kurt Zuma back and I think that'll be very helpful to us he's premier league experienced my my um heart really wants that fifth spot I think um first of all I think the big three that's out of the question uh the big three are locked in it's um Liverpool it's man city and it's probably chelsea um, so then you have to consider that west ham are going against arsenal tottenham man u and us for those next seven spots um my heart really wants us to say oh we can we could finish fifth um but i think my my head says sixth just because i think antonio conte as much as i hate to say it. I hate Spurs. He's actually, he's a quality manager. Um, So I can see they've already turned around their form. I can see um, them continuing that and finishing ahead of us. Um, Arsenal is the one team where I think they seem to have turned the corner, but there's just something about them. I don't trust them. I don't know why, even though their recent form hasn't been good. I don't trust them overall. And I think we could finish ahead of them um, without more injuries. Um, and I think we can finish ahead of um, Man U because they're so inconsistent. But on the other hand, they're on paper, they're, they're so good, Man U, but they just, they don't work well together. Um, you could also see a run-up from Leicester. But yeah, my, um, my, heart, my heart says fifth, my head says sixth.
4: Early Doors Football Podcast for
0: football fans worldwide. If you want to get in touch with Mark and the rest of the team, you can reach them on earlydoors at forthenow.co.uk.